Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 161 recorded March 30th, 2014. So today we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to actually be introduced to a new cast of characters. Mostly new. We got Mo- one one familiar face and the rest exactly. is brand new folks. Brand spanking new. Interesting characters. An interesting mix of characters. Right. So it was kind of cool how Marvel did this, where they they came out with this series and with the Captain Pike series. You know, both had at least one character you've seen. You know, Nog obviously you've seen a lot. Pike you've seen, you know, in his little blinky chair. Hmm. Uh, But then from that, they create a whole new cast of of characters for their their new uh, voyages. Right. Which was was pretty cool and, and novel idea for the most part. Yeah. I mean, they did bring over number one. Sure. And and, uh, and what Colt was her Colt, name? Colt, right? Yeah. But everybody else was new. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and Boothby's. We'll see Boothby. He's he's a character that's been in. Oh, that's another right. So right. I mean, there there are peppering of people that you might know, but in situations that you never ever would have seen. Right. Uh, the only other time I can think that. Star Trek has allowed Expanded Universe to do this was... Well, I guess it's happened quite a few times, but in comic books, New Frontier, uh, the Peter David novel series that got its own comic book series a couple right. times. And then, I guess in the novels, there's 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 maybe more examples of this, like the Starfleet Corps of Engineers or something like that, which has several books out, which is just based on random engineers, and mm-hmm. you know, Scotty's in it sometimes, and sometimes he's not. So I guess there is a precedent, but I think it's still a pretty pretty chancy move on Marvel's part. Right. But they've been talking about doing a Starfleet Academy movie for a while, or had been in the past. So right. what would you say, like, so the sixth movie? Uh, the sixth movie was, was at one time talked about being a flashback to Starfleet Academy where they recast all the uh, original series characters. Right. To celebrate the 25th anniversary, which would have been a horrible mistake. <laughs> I completely agree. Happy anniversary, Shatner. You're fired. Exactly. We're getting this this Chris Pine little baby coming in. <laughs> yeah, he would have been like a 12-year-old or something. Yeah, or, something. Uh, uh, you know, pretty young. Maybe a tad too young to play uh, that. Probably. Probably. <laughs> so, but, I, guess I mean, Pine is lucky they waited until J.J. was ready. Right. But if you look at uh, Star Trek Eleven, it, it has a lot of the elements of what Starfleet Academy would have been if they made it back then. Right. How did Bones and McCoy and Sky, uh, Spock all meet up for the first time in, right. in the Academy? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so and, it's, it's good. Yeah, and I think I might have said this before at some point in the podcast, but I'm glad they didn't just do a Starfleet Academy reboot movie. I'm glad they had, yeah, that's fine, that's part of the movie, but now we get to the main story. Right, right. Yeah, and and also, speaking of reboot Starfleet Academy movies, 
and I don't know how truthful this is, but around the time Nemesis came out mm-hmm. and Enterprise was still on, yeah, and they just did the merger of the CW and UPN. Um, before that merger happened, there was talk of another Star Trek uh, TV series, and it would have been called Starfleet Academy, and it would have had Wesley going back to Starfleet Academy as a teacher or something after his experiences with the Traveler. Hmm. You know, and it, he wouldn't be the focus of the show, but he would have been in it. Right. And then it would have focused on, you know, the next generation of, you know, young cadets kind of thing. Hmm. But I think by that time, Star Trek had kind of run its course, and they just weren't getting the ratings that they wanted exactly. with Enterprise. Yeah. Well. Which is unfortunate, because that's a darn good show. It was a darn good show, but what are you going to do? What are you going right. to do? It had, it had a good run, though. I mean, what, four years? Four seasons? Uh, yep, four. That's yep. not bad, considering what the ratings were like. Right. It doesn't but, help that... I don't know. It doesn't help that they they wrote the stories, or at least the last two seasons, so intertwined that you, you couldn't miss an episode. Oh, and this yeah. was really before DVRs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was like one of the first shows that did that. That you literally, if you missed an episode, you're lost. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's commonplace, you know, with, with everything that's on TV now. But right. It was a little ahead of its time. Yeah, almost nobody other than situation comedies do the standalone episodes. Anymore, right. Yeah. Cool. So, anyways, uh, but back to the comic books and Enterprise. I love that there's other expanded universe type series, but I just hate that there's not ever been an Enterprise comic book series. So if anybody from IDW is listening, I want want a Star, (laughs) Star Trek Enterprise comic book. That's right, and Donovan's a shaker and mover. You, you, you're going to want to do what he says. Darn right. I and the Legion of Listeners would like to read a Enterprise comic book. I know, make, I'd like to read it. Come on. Make, make it so. Exactly. There you go, Captain. Let's get with this Academy thing, eh? Yeah. And meet these new start. characters. So let's see what happened in issue number one. Cool. I have the pleasure... No, the honor of doing the first one. It is entitled Prime Directives. Came out December of 1996. The writer was Chris Cooper. Chris Renald was the penciler. Andy Lanning, inker. Jim Novak, letterer. Kevin Summers, colorist. Bobby Chase, editor. And Bob Harris, editor-in-chief. So the cover shows five young adults from four various species. We don't know who they are now, so I'm not going to tell you who they are. But there is an Andorian female. She doesn't have any guns, but she fist-balled ready to fight. Then the, there's a Vulcan female, a human male, and a human female. And finally, a male Ferengi. The other four all have phasers blasting away at something off the page. They're all clad in Starfleet cadet uniforms with the red shoulders and the black uh, shirt and slacks. And then behind this group of people is a swirl of curving red grid lines. So, who are these people? So, the story starts off, it actually tells us, setting San Francisco about 400 years from now, which would be 1996. So, 400 years from 1996. The story starts with a hulking green creature called a Jinketh 
gloating over two young human males who are tied to a wall. It seems that the blonde human was captured while he was trying to rescue the other human. The Jinkaf is surrounded by other humans carrying assault rifles of various sorts. The Jinkath is about to lick the blonde human with his poisonous tongue, when suddenly the roof collapses in, and armed Starfleet security troops repel in. The security troops make short work of most of the kidnappers, but one of them gets away. The blonde man is able to get free from his chains in time to tackle the fleeing man and give him one hell of a right hook. The blonde man is identified as Matt Decker, and he tells his friend that he had a transmitter in his finger that led the security forces here. He is confident that this stunt will garner them enough praise at the academy so that they'll be able to pick which squads they are going to be on, and they will make sure that they're on the same squad. Flash forward later, the cadets find out that the upper brass of Starfleet are not too impressed with their little stunt. The boys had caused them to lose a sting operation that was in the works so that they could catch criminals much higher up in the chain than Ginneth's team. The two young men will be assigned to separate squads. Decker will be assigned to the newly formed Omega Squad that is commanded by a Bajoran woman named Zund, who just happens to be in the office this whole time. Zund informs Decker that his family lineage means nothing and that his squad mates consist of, a, of Goldstein from Earth, Pava from Andor, Tapril from Vulcan, and Nog from Ferenginar. Decker seems okay with most of them, but the news of Nog being on his squad seems to not settle well with the young man. Later in the grounds around the academy, Nog is taking a walk when he's suddenly attacked by a dog. Boothby arrives, and he assures the Ferengi that the dog is just being friendly. Nog calms down and even seems to be enjoying the licking the dog is giving his lobes. Nog leaves the groundskeeper and the dog, and he arrives to his room. He is hoping that a surprise from his uncle will be there waiting for him. He opens the door to find a completely different surprise, that in the form of a naked, blue-skinned female standing within the doorway waiting for him. This is Pava the Andorian. She is welcoming him in what she had learned was the custom on Ferenginar, meaning that women do not wear clothing. Nog, perhaps unaccustomed to this due to his upbringing on Deep Space Nine, makes a comment about how mates are also always in the nude. Pava takes this as some sort of advance, and she pushes him out of the room. Quickly dressing, she tells him that he only wishes that she could be his mate. He tries to apologize, but she storms away. Decker then arrives in time to see the end of this interaction. Without asking any questions, he just assumes that Nog was indeed making the advances that he was being blamed for. And he tells Nog that if he hears of this happening again, that he will make sure that Nog is kicked out of the Academy. Meanwhile, in the holodeck, Goldstein is reenacting the battle of 20th century Jews and Muslims. She does this as a reminder that her mother was a Muslim and her father was a Jew. Tapril is also there with her, but does not understand why Goldstein performs the same scenario over and over again. Goldstein explains that it reminds her that her ancestors are now joined, and points out that perhaps Romulus and Vulcan will someday be reunited as well. Tapril does not seem convinced. The next day at the Academy, the squad is informed that they will be tested on first contact scenarios in the holodeck the following day. 
As the class is dismissed, Nog is pushed by a cadet with a black goatee. Decker defends Nog. Nog then thanks him, but Decker cuts him off saying that they are not, nor will they ever be, friends, and he storms away. The next morning, the cadets enter the holodeck. They will be reenacting three first contact scenarios. One from a real-life contact scenario that they've studied, the second from a hypothetical species, and then a third scenario that they will have no prior preparation for. They enter the holodeck, and they find themselves on Xantori Prime. They see a city nearby, and they start to walk towards it. Goldstein reminds the group that the Xantorians do not like direct steps, so the group has to walk diagonally to the city. Soon, a freak thunderstorm appears. The group have to lie down in the tall grass and wait until the storm passes. Once it passes, a group of Gorn show up and point blasters at the group. Meanwhile, outside of the holodeck, Zund is trying to stop the holodeck program. It seems that it's malfunctioning and that the safeties are now completely off. She has no way to contact the squad inside. Inside the holodeck, the Gorn identify themselves as Hypothetical Gorn 4.0. They start to fire at the young cadets. Tricorder scans prove that these phaser blasts are indeed real and that they will die if they get hit by them. They are able to attack the Gorn and take the weapons away from them. Nog is getting nervous when they mention that the randomizer seems to be malfunctioning and combining their test scenarios. He comes clean and he tells the group that he received a gift from his uncle Quark. It was a holodeck randomizer that would make the holograms inside seem more intense. He tried the previous night to get it installed, but it did not work, so he tried to uninstall it. The group speculate that the program had somehow become sentient, and that they need to devise a way to communicate with the program so that they can prove that they indeed are sentient themselves. So they devise a way to communicate via Morse code using the transponder still within Decker's finger. It works, and the computer manifests a face and greets them. He is surprised that they are intelligent. He tells them that he is as well, and then he says farewell and vanishes. With that, the holodeck returns to normal. Later, Zund talks to Boothby about her eclectic group of cadets. She thinks that they have a lot of promise, and Boothby agrees. Elsewhere, Goldstein walks past T'Pril's room, and she overhears crying. She knocks on the door and asks if T'Pril is okay. The Vulcan calmly says she is, and Goldstein leaves thinking she must have misheard, because Vulcans do not cry. Inside, to Pril's room, we see that she is indeed crying, and looking into the mirror, and that the reflected image is not her own, but that of a Romulan woman in full Romulan uniform. The image tells her not to forget that she is a Romulan spy. To be continued. What do you okay. think? Huh? Huh? <laughs> I thought it was a good introduction. It was good meeting everybody, the five new cast of characters. It was far from a flawless comic. Um, I really, I wasn't crazy yet again seeing another, not only out-of-control holodeck, but a sentient holodeck program. It's like, I I really didn't need to see that again. But I, I guess they needed some big challenge to bond the team of five together, and this is what they came up with. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if they would have just stuck with the holodeck is a miss, 
you know, and the safeties are off, and you have to fight the Gorn 4.0. Oh, God. I, I think I would have liked that better than they went the extra step to say, no, the holodeck's actually sentient, and we have to communicate it with it with my little finger radio, and <laughs> it's all good after that. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just took it a tad too far for me. Exactly. So those are not great things, although the things I think are good is the opening page. I really like that nasty-looking face of the unknown. It was a nasty-looking close-up of this this insectoid alien thing. And I love his name. Pretty cool. I think it's actually pronounced... Okay, a little bit more a little bit more tongue. Okay, okay, I'll go yeah, with cause, that. Because look at that tongue. Yeah, boy, yeah. tongue. Yeah, yeah, and what he was going to do with it. Yuck. Yeah, so, the, I mean, in regards to that, was... Was he going to stick his tongue into uh, Decker's mouth? Or Decker? was Decker just saying that I almost got French kissed by uh, uh, Jin Thek? Uh, I think that's what he was going to do. Yeah. Unless he was going to be able to somehow throw sp- enough spittle into his mouth. Yuck. <laughs> well, when I did the synopsis, I thought he was just going to like lick his face or something, and then his tongue was that poisonous that it would seep in through his pores but yeah. but looking at that picture there on uh well the pages aren't numbered so i guess yeah. page two that bottom yeah it does look like he's about to yes insert the tongue in. insert the tongue <laughs> yuck but uh, i did like the uh, opening line and i think you do a great impression i do that you could uh, you know do a little reading of what what his opening lines are Oh, I, I hate when I have pressure. <laughs> well, you did it before, so I figured you'd want to do it again. Uh, okay. Okay. You Starfleet cadets, you all want to face the unknown. Well, take a good look, cadet. It will be your last. I didn't get Whoa. all that quite right, but that's fine. Close enough. Shivers. Shivers. Yeah, so he's a little over the top, but he does look kind of nasty and threatening. And and I do kind of like what he was saying. Yeah, no, it was pretty funny because it kind of took the, you know, the Federation motto and kind of turned it on its head. Exactly. It yeah. Yeah, and now he he his design reminds me a lot of uh, Hellboy, those creatures in Hellboy with the, mm. the long tongues and the salamandery look. Right, big and eyes he, and. Yeah, doesn't doesn't they don't they look like this guy? Uh yeah, I think you're right. Uh, uh, in some cases, elongated face, mouth kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Now, they didn't wear pants that I remember, but, but this guy has to be, you know, he can't be indecent. No, no. He's got the pants and a bat utility belt, and he's got it all. Right. But from the torso up, man, he's weird. <laughs> yeah, interesting design, and uh, I just wonder why all his followers are human. Yeah, his partners or whatever. Right. Yeah. I don't know. So what do you think about seeing Boothby? Uh, Boothby was okay. I mean, I I love that character or the uh, the actor who plays Boothby in the mm-hmm. show. Uh, Ray, what's his Ray, name? Ray Walston. Ray Walston, right? He was good. He's good. Yeah. My my favorite Martian, a great actor that has popped up in all kinds of things over the years. Uh, right. I'm sure he's passed on by now, but um, he did he did pass away a few years yeah, ago. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, 2001, I think. I looked him up earlier this morning for no oh. apparent reason, oh, okay. and uh, he died in 2001. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he wasn't young when he did the Boothby thing. 
Yeah, but so... His, but what's his greatest role ever? Oh, according like, to you? According to me. I, I'm the only one that matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, Papa Popeye, of course. Yes, he played Pappy, not Pappy. Pop. Pappy Popeye. Right. So, uh, yes, he was He was a great Pappy. Good. And he was a great Boothby, and he was a great Martian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the only thing is, uh, and maybe this is just my opinion, but Boothby is demonstrating a level of knowledge of what's going on that is kind of hard to believe, unless he's more than just the gardener. Right. I mean, he always demonstrated knowledge of what was going on. Of course, he was always the wise guy that, with wisdom, not not a not a, <laughs> not a gangster, that's able to give Picard and many other cadets just the right push at the right time for them to get through the uh, academy. But in this thing, he seems to have an awful lot of knowledge, which doesn't seem right uh, or appropriate. I mean, he knows about he knows about Decker's situation being captured uh, by the bad guys and he's able to alert Starfleet Academy security to this it's like mm-hmm. wow okay what did did Decker like say hey Boothby got a sub substutaneous transponder here I'm gonna do something risky catch you later I don't think that happened no, no. Uh, so how did he know that and he knew Nog's name, which might not be that. That might be okay because he is the first Ferengi, after all. But right. then he knows who's on Nog's team enough to get Decker a message from him through Nog. It's like really, hmm, interesting. Right. Yeah. No, I wasn't. I didn't like that part unless he really is, you know, an undercover something, you know, or or, or he's an alien. Uh, or like a or Martian, maybe like a Martian, or or maybe he actually has some in with the administration or something. I don't know. Right. It's almost like he's too much like the Boothby from Voyager, because in Voyager he wasn't really Boothby. He was really part of species. Was it? Uh, mm. uh, eight eight five one seven or whatever. Something some like number. That. Right, uh, the the uh, alternate dimension aliens that the board could never beat. So right, he, and, and in that he had a larger role than just Boothby because he was actually kind of the voice of this species, mm-hmm. uh, and it made sense why that Boothby knew more stuff than what a normal Boothby would. So I, right, it seemed like this Boothby's more like that that guy who wasn't right. really even Boothby. Right. So I'm kind of. Kind of wondering, but uh, he does have a dog, and and the dog seems to really like Nog. Hmm. Yes, and some of those licks on his ears. I was feeling a little oogie <laughs> when that was going on. It, it was a little awkward since we know how much they like to have their ears massaged. That this dog's just licking away. Exactly. And, and Basically, Nog... a urogenous zone. Right. A little, little inappropriate. And Nog's like, hee, it tickles. I'm going to have to get myself a dog. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Enough of that. So, so, good chunk of the the book. We get to meet everybody. Yep. Everybody on the team, including the commander, different species, except for there's two humans for for really no apparent reason. Well, you got to have a human. One, but why do we need two? 
well, I don't know, maybe they want somebody for the females in the audience to relate to who are human. That was the only thing I could think of, that yeah. they wanted, if you were a female reading the book, you would want a human female to relate to and a, a male to relate to a male. Right, but... Uh, although I, mean, I think... The, the Vulcan's close enough. Well, speaking T'Pril. of close enough, they look exactly the same. Uh, yeah! Goldstein yes. and uh, T'Pril. I agree with that. They're the same heights, they're both dark hair, similar build. Uh, I thought they... Build. Yeah, when I saw the cover, I thought they were like sisters or something. They're like twin sisters or something that happened to be on the team. That's what right. I thought their thing was going to be. But no, they're not related. Not, they're not even the same species. Right. And, and T'Pril's eyebrows look like Goldstein's. They don't really arch like a, Much. Like a normal Vulcan's would. Right. So it's it's really hard to tell them apart a lot of times. You have to really look for those ears. Yeah. And, of course, the ponytail is helpful. When uh, it shows it. But a lot of times yeah. it's a close-up of someone's face. You don't yeah, see, so you don't see what's behind. Yeah. I agree. But you got to look at these little things. But the one female that you can tell right away is Pava, the Andorian. The super-hot Andorian kick-butt babe. Right, so she's like a maybe a head taller than, than maybe even Decker. So she's tall. She's a tall woman. She's tall, and she's built like a brick poop house. <laughs> right. So I did like her character, and I like it especially in the later two books, where you know she's she's kind of the dwarf of the series. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also has that kind of innocent fish out of water type. I think, or at least that's the way I was getting, it, especially when she tried to go out of her way to uh, make Nog, or what she thought would make Nog feel more comfortable by <laughs> showing up naked. Uh-huh. It didn't yeah. work, and it just seemed a little gratuitous if you think about it in in the context. Uh, that It was totally gratuitous. Talk, talk, about, uh, talk about aiming your comic at the target demographic. <laughs> Teenage males, yes. Well, yes. it doesn't really show anything, so it's Well, not... they show her, you know, her... her they show her... They, there's two panels where they show parts of her. Right. Now, mind you, it's none of the naughty parts, but it's enough uh, that it's like, hmm, interesting. Right. So, I, I just like that. I, I mean, she's an exchange student. She knows how it is to be alone, away from your culture. Right. She thought this would help Nog, and, and you know, Nog, growing up on Deep Space Nine... You know, the only time he's ever really been around completely naked females is when he's, you know, at home visiting Moogie. Right. Which, you know, is, is it's just kind of weird. Well, it's weird because, well, that's totally weird, seeing your grandmother nude. But, but hey, you know, Nog's a young buck, and there's this goddess that just ends up uh, being naked in front of him. It's like, come on. You didn't think this all the way through, Papa. <laughs> that's obvious. Right. But uh, I, I do think often that Star Trek really tries to play up that humans are the prudish ones and that mm-hmm. they put more emphasis on nudity than any other species because, you know, we see Beta Zeds and Ferengi and Vulcans. You know, they don't, they don't bat an eye when they're walking around in the buff. Right. We're all... So, I, I, don't, I mean... Is that just for ratings, or is that really... Were they really thinking that, oh, well, 
humans really are prudish, and we need to put this message out there. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know, but you, you are right. They do tend to do that a fair amount. Right. I mean, heck, they put butt cheeks on Nog's head. Butt cheeks yeah. on Nog's head? Look at his forehead. <laughs> Those aren't butt cheeks. Those are balls, man. Look at... <laughs> okay. No, the only kind of big I... balls, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> the only reason I say that is because I saw an interview with... What's his name? Alan Shimmerman? The guy who played Nog? Oh, I mean, Armin, uh, Armin Sh- Shimmerman or Armin? Right. Something like that. But he was also the very first Ferengi we ever saw on Next Generation. Yeah. And they yeah. hired him, and they were kind of describing what the alien would look like and they were like yeah you'll you'll have like big ears and you're gonna have these big balls on your forehead uh-huh and then he's like oh uh I, you know he didn't he said he didn't say anything because you know he just wanted the job but he was like what does the, what do they mean balls on my forehead <laughs> but, uh they look like 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 cheeks butt cheeks to me but yes balls could do it too they just anyway hold us Yes. So what do you think about the little twist at the end about T'Pril? Uh That was probably the best part of the book, I thought. Yeah. I wasn't expecting it, and it leaves a lot of questions open as to who T'Pril actually is and what her end game is. Uh, right, because she doesn't even know what her end game is. No. Apparently. That is interesting. Uh, of course, I think that even when the team finds out that she's a Romulan, that somehow they'll get her through it and she'll get, you know, she'll be able to get that part out of her head. And uh, I think she'll be, I think she'll be the first accepted uh, Romulan in Starfleet. Well, depending on continuity, uh, Savick was technically the first half-Romulan allowed in Starfleet. Oh, we don't know if T'Pril's half Romulan, full Romulan, a brainwashed Vulcan. We don't know yet. Yes. Well, good point. Good point. So you, you think maybe she'll betray them, do whatever her secret mission is, and then somehow redeem herself and it'll all be good? I think so, because after all, that's what happened to... Um... Boomer? Ah, thank you. Yes, so on Battlestar Galactica... That's what happened to Boomer, exactly. So Boomer was a black uh, gentleman in the original series. In this, in the reboot, it was a girl, and she was a Cylon, for those of you that may not recall. I'm sure you do. Popular show. In the end, she ended up shooting Adama and sabotaging a large portion of their water supply, which is kind of important. But in the end, uh, she was accepted by most of the people after she overcame her uh, brainwashing or right. her programming, whatever. So weird that both storylines of that character and this character seem so close to each other. Of course, this comic came out first. but um, And I think you pointed out off, off air that, uh, uh, what's his name, Ronald Moore? Mm-hmm. I mean, at this time, 1996, he was part—he was part of the Star Trek family. Oh yeah. So. yeah, he was writing scripts for TNG and Deep Space Nine. Um, He—I don't know the—I don't know how much involvement he had in Voyager, but he definitely was in TNG and uh, DS9. And uh, yes, he was one of the two main people behind the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Right. So was he somehow exposed, maybe, to Star Trek comics? Who knows? Coincidence. Hmm. 
could be. Of course, you know, I, I suppose this kind of story, I, I guess it's been done before. Sure. Um, I can't think of an example, but uh, I'm sure it's been done before. So. Right, or somebody betrays them, and then it's the brainwashing to make you loyal and then suddenly flip. That's somewhat unique for these two. I can't think of a scenario aside from these two that that would fit that that mold. Well, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Except before, I mean, before kind of did it. And Nemesis. Yeah, but that came after. Right. And he's a robot, but yeah. I guess in old spy shows and stuff, maybe they might have done that where. You know, one of the, like, Ilya Kuryakin gets grabbed and brainwashed and sent back to, you know, to assassinate the president or something, and somehow they're able to figure it out and stop him at the last minute, and then the spell's broken after that. Who knows? Hmm. Uh, uh, of course, that's Man I don't know Uncle. who that is. Man uh, from Uncle? Man from Uncle. Uh, Ilya Kuryakin, Napoleon Solo. There you go. Gotcha. Obviously, where Han got his name. Han Solo. Yeah, I know I know that Solo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that came a lot later. Right. Than uh, Napoleon Solo. But okay. Back in 64. A fine series. All right. Well, back to this issue. Okay. What did you think about that gentleman that uh, was a little rude to Nog when they were being dismissed from the class, and he bumps into him and, and kind of calls him a toad, and then... Decker comes to his defense. Um, I don't know. Stereotype? I was kind of wondering if he's supposed to be one of the human-looking Klingons. Because he has the dark hair, the eyebrows look very, you know, Taz, Klingon-y, and then he has the goatee. I I don't know. Uh, Could you remind me of what context in which there would be human-looking Klingons? I mean... In well, that, that, that other, that other, that supposed other race that you never see anymore in TNG time frame. Exactly. That's what you're trying. That's what you're advancing. Yeah. <laughs> and we saw a Maybe. little bit of it. DC Comics did. They had that one admiral that was really a Klingon, and he also kind of looked like this too. So I was just wondering if, if that's what they're going with with this guy, or if he just has the goatee because he's evil. I think he's evil or he's Tony Stark. One of the two. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> maybe none. I, I don't right. know. Maybe. Maybe. But I... Yeah. yeah. He does look a little like a Klingon. Now that you mention it. Okay. That's actually my last uh, comment. I mean, we've already talked about how ridiculous the sentient holodeck was. Oh, it was. This one thing I have to mention is looking back on the page where the jerk that was uh, given Naga hard time with the with the with the beard and everything or the, the goatee whatever right. the Klingon looking guy perhaps if you look on the other side of the previous page there's a guy in the hollow deck of the the Israeli Palestinian simulated uh-huh. war that looks an awful lot like the theoretical Klingon jerk hmm. interesting. Yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. I just noticed that now. And and I think he this guy shows up in the in the later issues too. Cool. 
my last comment for this issue is that I thought it was pretty cool how Decker was not automatically the leader. So they're in the holodeck, they do their simulation thing, they, they meet the Gorns, and it is Goldstein who's the leader, not Decker in that simulation. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, right, I skipped that in the synopsis, but yeah, uh, Zund uh, appoints Goldstein right. team leader. Right. So that was cool. And also the fact that there are more women than men on the team as main right. characters, which is, I think, a first in Star Trek uh, stories, although Voyager had a lot of very strong women, including Captain Janeway, of course. Really only had two strong women. Kess, Kess, I guess seven out of nine, too. Well, what, what you're forgetting about... Uh, Balana. Balana? I mean. Yeah, I was counting Balana and Janeway as two strong ones, but oh. I guess you could count seven or nine. Oh, I think so. And she was hot, but whatever. But at least Kess was in there. Kess was in there, too. Right. If you count Zund, it's like the guys are way outnumbered. Yep, so, two to one. Yeah, so that's kind of different. Kind of weird. Right. Kind of cool. Kind of different. Why not? Mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Now, we also never find out who Decker is related to. I mean... Oh, exactly? I mean, he's supposed to be some kind of descendant of First Officer, Matt Decker, right? Right. But how? Because... Not from the movie? uh, The motion picture. Well, who's also the son of Decker from the, uh, the original series? Right. So, is he... Did Decker from uh, the motion picture have other brothers or sisters? Or brothers, right? Because it's the Decker name, not... Unless his sister got married and kept the Decker name. Yeah. And there's Uh, no reason he couldn't have had a child. Uh, After all, Kirk did. But... Yeah, but... I'm just just throwing it out there. He was in love with Ilya, Ilya, however you pronounce her name. (laughs) <laughs> and they didn't have a kid, and then he went well, off I know, with Beecher, but, so... Well, I, what I'm just pointing out is probably some other person in the in the family. However, uh, you know, First Officer Decker, uh, he didn't know Ilya until the movie. He could have, you know, had himself his own little Dr. Carol Marcus somewhere. You never know. Oh, he knew her before the movie because they were... They oh, were that's right. The Mzadis. Yeah, okay, fine, 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 fine. Okay, but I'm just saying, Decker could have, you know, fathered, uh, sired a, uh, a youngin. You never know. Yeah, true, true. But good question. I don't know where he came from. I don't, I don't know the direct lineage. Yeah, I just assume they would, like, you know, throw that out at you right at the beginning, but they, they had Right. And, and it was Matt Decker in the motion picture, right? No. What, what was his name? First name? I thought it was Thomas Decker. Thomas Riker. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Tom. Um, well, whatever. Whatever Will, it was. Will Decker? <laughs> <laughs> Are you messing with me now? <laughs> no. I'm I really think you're messing to... with me now. <laughs> no, I'm really trying to remember what his name is. Oh, okay. Will uh, Decker. Let's see. It, it was Will is Decker. It, was it Will Decker? Yes. His name was Willard or William Decker. That was his name. Uh, well, I don't know for sure. Maybe. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was his name. Okay, well, whatever his first name is, for some reason I thought it might have actually been Matt, but maybe not. 
No, that was his. The dad's name was Matt. The first one, Commodore. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So a uh, long line of uh, Deckers. So whatever. I think it's a uh, refreshing to have this uh, this change of uh, gender. Right. Yes. Uh, I agree. You know. That's it for me. Anything else? Nope. On the first it. issue. Cool. Well, the second issue is titled Liberty, and that's Liberty is in vacation kind of thing, you know, military vacation kind of thing. And the published date is January 1997. Creative team is made up of the writer, Chris Cooper, penciler, Chris Renault, inker, Andy Lanning, colors, Kevin Summers, letterer, Kim Novak, editor, Bobby Chase, chief, Bob Harass. The cover shows a brawl between a single, nasty-looking, purple lizard alien guy and the three female members of Omega Squad. They are trying their best against the purple juggernaut, but he appears to be winning the day. The issue opens on Vulcan. Tuprell is in a red-hooded outer garment armed with a knife. A green and yellow-colored large cat, similar to a very large lion, springs on Tuprell. She keeps her calm, Vulcan demeanor, and when it attacks, she attempts to attack it into its eye with a knife, in hopes of getting the knife into its brain. Her attack takes out the beast's eye, but does not manage to drive the blade down deeply enough to harm its brain. As the lion comes around for another attack, suddenly a phaser beam lances out to stun the creature temporarily. It's Tuprell's father, Talark. He wants to know what the heck she is doing out in the Forbidden Valley all alone. She says she seeks the male-only Kaswan rite of passage to challenge herself in the wilds to find out what she is made of. The father objects to this challenge to Vulcan tradition, but tries lamely to defend it with a logical argument. As her father is speaking, she sees the ghost of a Romulan sub-commander named Thokal who she strangely knows and treats like her commanding officer. In the meantime, the big cat, called a Lamacha, with one good eye, shakes off being stunned by the phaser and knocks Dad backward so the big cat can finish his interrupted business with Tuprell undisturbed. The story cuts back to the present, to a rough-looking bar in Sydney, where the women of Omega Squad are unwinding a bit. Tuprell is recounting the incident from her childhood with the Lamachia over a drink with Camilla, while Eknor is the lovely flower who is attracting four male suitors back at the bar. Camilla wants to know what happened with the big cat, but Tuprell says that is not important. What is important is that even on Vulcan, where intellectual development is so highly prized, male sexist attitudes still exist. They complain about Nog's sexist attitudes. Camilla explains how, even in the 23rd century, there are members of her own two heritages that continue to restrict what women can do. Meanwhile, Eknor and her admirers, attention is drawn to a big, purple, nasty-looking, and drunk Oguran at the end of the bar. The small human who has been buying drinks says he keeps going on and on about how his species is keenly perceptive and can tell the difference between many races that appear the same to the casual eye. 
They say, what can you expect after he was enslaved in a Romulan labor camp for ten years? The scene cuts to Decker, playing zero-G racquetball with his friend Yoshi. Their conversation mostly centers around Nog, who Yoshi is surprised Decker is spending so much time with. Yoshi says Decker is one of the top cadets in the class, but he spends so much time with a loser like Nog. Decker defends Nog to some degree, but does call him needy. In fact, right now he is reading up on human culture using Deckard's computer. Meanwhile, in Decker's quarters, Nog is reading through unsatisfying human literary classics, looking unsuccessfully for stories about total greed and profit-making. His interest shifts to a locked box that he picks and opens. He is very happy with what he finds. Back in Sydney, Pava is Indian wrestling with a large and muscular man. He is much larger than Pava, but she appears to be holding her own. Finally, in frustration with her antics, Camila interrupts the contest and tells Pava to end this. After some protest, Pava does so by handily beating the large brute. She was just playing with him all along. The large brute got angry. He gets up and moves towards Pava, saying nobody makes him look like a fool in his own bar. A fight ensues that eventually draws everyone into it except for Tuprell. She sits there thinking that Earth is a noisy place, and that it will demand lots of meditation for her to maintain her sanity. Meanwhile, Decker is walking across campus to his quarters, thinking about his deceased brother Robert, who died early in his Starfleet career. He wonders if he is at Starfleet now to finish what his brother started, or is he just trying to find a place to call home, a place where he can belong. He comes home to find Nog on the floor reading his comic books. Nog apparently likes them quite a bit more than what the humans call classic literature. It turns out Decker is one of those comic book collectors that keeps his comics hermetically sealed and never, ever touches them. He is very upset with Nog, and says the Ferengi has ruined them. He physically grabs the little Gilligan-esque Ferengi, throwing him out of his quarters and telling him to not only get out of his quarters, but get out of his life. Meanwhile in Sydney, the fight continues, and Pava is kicking Boutte and screaming, I love this! Between punches, Camila is chastising Pava for what she has started. But Pava is telling her they need to blow off some steam, and after all, this is great exercise. The large purple Oguran is almost passed out at the bar, and still going on about how he can tell any species from any species. A chair crashes near his head, and he wakes up. He looks across at the mayhem, and catches sight of Duprell for the first time. He stands up and shouts, You are one of them! He is drunk, but he is fast. He grabs her from behind around the arms and chest. He is too strong for her to break his hold on her. She is helpless, and she can't breathe. Pava and Camila see what is going on, so they dispatch their current combatants and turn to run to her aid. Tuprell thinks this is like the life-and-death struggle with the Lamacha back on Vulcan. The beast had her on the ground, with its massive paws on her chest. It was about to kill her when she stopped fruitlessly trying to use her inadequate strength to get it off of her. 
Rather, she used her mind and attempted a mind-meld with the beast. Shocked by the flood of thoughts entering its simple mind, the beast froze long enough to get away from it with her father. She tries the same thing with Ogurun, who is calling her a fraud, as he squeezes with all his might. The Ogurun is very surprised by the unexpected invasion of its mind. It loosens its grip just enough for Tiprel to break it, turn, and give the juggernaut the old Vulcan net pinch. The Ogurun hits the ground. Surprised, Pava and Camila arrive next to her. A handy doctor runs to the Ogurin and says she is drunk and should be fine by morning. They are all shocked the huge Ogurin is a she. They all walk out of the bar and pass the Sydney Opera House. They talk about how they don't have to live up to anyone else's standards. They are free to be whomever they are. Tapril says wistfully, whomever they may be. They beam back to San Francisco. In his quarters, Decker gets a visit from a morose Nog. Decker lets him in and tells Nog he had no right to enter that locked box, unless to break the seals on those comic books. But, with the seals broken, he did start to read some of the comics, and he enjoyed them thoroughly. He forgot the true value of these books. Nog's actions reminded him of it. He says he kind of owes Nog a thanks for reminding him of it. Nog presents a mint-condition Marvel comic from the 1940s and proposes a co-ownership arrangement as a way of compensating Decker for his transgression. Decker accepts it, and fences are mended. Just then, upperclassman Jim Walters enters the room and asks to see Decker alone. Nog leaves, and Walters offers Decker membership in Red Squad the most elite squad in Starfleet, with special training and fast-tracking opportunities within and beyond the Academy. Walters tells Decker there is just one problem with his membership. He must start treating the Ferengi less like a teammate and more like a tool to be used. To be continued. So they're going to use Nog? That's what they're talking about. The only reason I could think that they would potentially need to use Nog is to somehow get a hold of, like, the Defiant or something like that. <laughs> I mean, why else would they really need the using? Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, later on they mentioned, or maybe in this issue, they mentioned that he knows Captain Sisko, but right. it's like, well, okay. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to use him. Right. So, and that, I guess, is a little interesting, but not nearly as interesting as storyline with Tapril and her Romulan Vulcan background. Yes. She will be the mystery box as these issues progress. Yeah, my only fear hmm. is that because this series did get cancelled fairly quickly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it was came out towards the end of Marvel's run, Yeah. Uh, that I'm hoping they get to finish that story before it just ends and we're left wondering mm-hmm. what, what did happen to T'Pril? Exactly. I don't know, man. So I don't want to chance, because uh, I haven't read these, I don't want to chance looking it up and finding spoilers, so... Yeah. I will just wait. Yes, be patient. It's only 16 or issues, so... Okay. It won't be too long. Well, 16 issues. That's They should be able to get to it and wrap it up. Hope so. Yeah, we'll find out. 
Yeah, I, so I, what is it? What is your opinion? What, don't mean to cut you off, but just fine. while we're still talking about Tapril, what is your thoughts on how was she brainwashed? Or I mean, is she a Romulan that was switched out with a Vulcan baby? Um, well, that's... is her dad somehow <laughs> in on it? You know. <coughs> yeah, I don't know. That, that's an excellent question. I mean, how far back does this go? I mean, I don't think you can brainwash a baby, but who knows? Um, I mean, definitely up until the time she starts having these visions of the Romulan commander, she seems pretty oblivious to her situation. She thinks she's Vulcan. So, um, how are right. they able to do that? I, I, I'm not quite sure. I guess we'll find out. And in her memories of her father, he's obviously Vulcan, and yes. he's definitely treating her as if it's his daughter. I mean, he doesn't... Mm-hmm. He doesn't... As, as if she was a Vulcan daughter, not as if she was a his Romulan daughter, or he's right. a Romulan spy, too. I mean, he right. seems 100% Vulcan. And she acts Vulcan in the past, but now she's having these weird Romulan moments. So that, that's the part that I'm trying to figure out. When, when did she get brainwashed? I don't know. But she, now that she's in Starfleet Academy, she may be much closer to the time where she will leverage her position to do the uh, Empire's bidding. So maybe that's the reason these memories are starting to surface and they never did before right right but she's definitely vulcan enough that she can do the nerve pinch she can do the mind meld all the all the normal tropes or whatever that uh, vulcans can do right and if she was raised on vulcan that was that was a bad word but anyway yeah the 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 normal abilities that we've come to know and love from the vulcans well if she was i mean if she was introduced into the vulcan environment early enough, young enough, you know, she would have learned that stuff like every Vulcan kid. So I think they've made it pretty clear that Vulcan and Romulans, they both spring from the same society. Right. So they, they should have the same kind of strength. And isn't it, you need strength to do Vulcan, a neck pinch, right? And they probably have the same telepathic abilities, I guess. Hmm. I guess. I mean, because the... Uh... What was it? The Remans? They were also an offshoot of the Vulcans. And they still seem to have the telepathic powers for sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe even more so than the Vulcans do. Right. Yeah, so the normal Romulans, I don't remember there ever being much about them having, you know, telepathic abilities, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, no, it's it's never mentioned. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I like. I still think that they're they're playing with us. They're just giving us a tad <laughs> bit more information, and and that storyline I'm really interested in. Yeah, and that's good. I mean, we're all gonna we'll find out together. Right. Yeah. You know, quite frankly, I'm really not that interested in Nog. Sorry to say, <laughs> no. but he's the character I'm least interested in so far. Well, he's the comic relief for the most part. Well, yeah, yeah he is. And the Gilligan kind of guy that, that kind of makes things, uh, <laughs> he screws up and makes things a little more interesting, like with the whole holodeck program in the first issue. Right. So, um, right. Hmm. And he's been around humans enough that, you know, him, you know, looking up our literature and things like that, I mean, yeah. he, he should know a little bit more about human society than what, what they're playing him up as. Uh, right. His best friend was Jake for the his mm-hmm. the last you know seven years. Right. I agree. He's not new. 
Right, but, you know, sometimes they revise things. Oh, we needed him to be a little bit more naive um, to make this new storyline go along. It's kind of like in soap operas and uh, Next Gen when somebody's got a baby and then the baby leaves for a season and they come back, ping, they're 12 years old now. Amazing. When did Next Generation do that? Oh, with Alexander. What do you... Yeah, what, what are you messing with me? Alexander. Yeah, but he was a little guy for a long time. He he only grew up in Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Well. And that was completely explained. <laughs> he hit Klingon puberty. <laughs> and he grew like a weed. Right. Yeah, I don't think so. So, I, I th- speaking of messing with us, I thought they were messing with us when Tapriel wasn't going to tell the rest of the... how she got out of that sticky wicket with the La Macha. Right. Yeah, that was a... I was like, what do you mean it's not important? It's important. What happened? I like how Goldstein says, you really need to work on your storytelling skills. <laughs> that's a good point. Yes. That's, that's quite true. My only other comment is I enjoyed a book about a guy reading a comic book <laughs> made by the same publisher that's making this comic book. I yeah. thought that was actually kind of cool. Well, I thought it was a little bit pandering, quite frankly. Oh, we're you know we're gonna have uh, we got these characters and they're gonna be comic book lovers too. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was, I, it was fine. It was nice, but I just it just struck me a little, little bit of pandering. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was cool, and then I thought I actually got a little bit of a kick out of the covers that he's reading are really small oh right uh, but i enjoyed like looking through them oh, okay that's that's X-Men what you get. number one that's uh, yeah that's you know marvel comics number one yeah i pretty much stopped at seeing a few x-men covers right. that was oh, i get the idea i moved along <laughs> but you were identifying them cool yeah i had to know which ones he was reading which ones right. are so valuable in the 24th century so i can go ahead and try to get them now good idea I mean, of course, you'll be dead by the time you could cash in, but hey, whatever. Yeah, but when my you know great 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 ancestors are going to Starfleet Academy, they can sell them and pay for their tuition. Ah, uh, think about it. Think about it. Uh, I'm trying not to. Okay, I got it. <laughs> oh, anyways, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Well, I've given my last comment on this one, so go All right. have at it. I'm good. You're good too. Okay. I'm good. You want to go on to number three? Please, let's do it. It came out February of 1997, entitled Loyalty Test. The writer, Chris Cooper. Penciler is John Royal. Inker, Tom Wegzerin. Letterer, Jim Novak. Colorist, Kevin Somers. Editor, Bobby Chase. And editor-in-chief, Bob Harris. The cover shows Matt Decker... His hands are manacled into one large manacle of some sort. He has a choke chain around his neck, and it's being held by two robed men. Decker is on his knees and looking up, perhaps pleading. And then the caption reads, Will Matt Decker's first day in Red Squad be his last? So the story starts exactly where the cover wanted us to believe it is. Matt is on his knees, the manacle is on his arms, and the choke chain around his neck. We see that there's more robed men around him, and they ask him if he's ready to make the ultimate sacrifice and to be able to sacrifice everything for Red Squad. He says yes. 
Then they have him cut his palm with a knife so that he can seal the deal in blood. The ceremony is cut short when news of a bombing breaks into the emergency comm channels. Later, we learn that the bomb was the same one that was depicted in the Deep Space Nine episode Homefront, and that it was a changeling that was involved in planting and detonating the bomb. To ensure that there's no other changelings at the Academy, everyone is required to undergo blood tests. Uh, Some of the Omega Squad people complain feeling that this is perhaps a violation, and uh, but they will go ahead and relent since it is mandatory. Later in the mess hall, Decker shuns his Omega Squad classmates in favor for his new Red Squad ones. Nog and Decker do have a conversation, but Decker blows off some previous plans they had to study together. Later in the gym, Decker arrives late for class. The others are already practicing hand-to-hand combat and have already paired up. Decker will have to actually practice with Commander Zund. She does not go easy on him and takes him out with a few well-placed moves. One move in particular was placing a quarter-sized metal disc behind his right ear without his knowledge. Later, Decker meets with his Red Squad mates and they tell them and they tell him of their plan to shut down Earth Power Station. The blackout will be enough for Starfleet to be able to take over governing the Earth. Decker tries to be sly and hit his comm badge so that this evil plan will be broadcast to all his Omega squadmates. But he is caught. With a few moves that he learned from Zund, Decker escapes and rushes away. He bumps into an admiral. He tells the man of the plan that he had just heard. The Admiral says that he already knows this, since he ordered it. The other Red Squad members catch up, and they recapture Decker. Elsewhere, Jake is visiting with Nog here on Earth. They meet up with Boothby, who provides some advice about not giving up on those who are important to you. Nog thinks of Decker, and he contacts him through his comm badge. Decker is allowed to answer it in order to not draw attention to him being captured, When speaking with Nog, he brushes the Ferengi off. Decker tells Nog that they are no longer friends and to just leave him alone. Red Squad then takes Decker to a transporter pad. They place him within a patterned buffer so that he would not be able to tell anybody of their plans. Several of them speculate that the pattern buffer will be turned off when the blackout happens, thus killing him. Decker is watching as he's being dematerialized, and he sees that Red Squad suddenly turns into Omega Squad, and he falls to the floor. He asks, how did they get there so fast? They inform him that he's been missing for six days, and that three of those days were during a blackout. They found him by tracking the metal disc that is somehow still behind his ear without his knowledge. Suddenly, Red Squad arrives and surrounds the group with phasers. Nog is able to distract them by pretending to plead for his life, while T'Pril is able to quickly beam most of them away. The others are fought hand-to-hand until only Decker and Olaf, the Red Squad leader, are standing. They both have phasers pointing at each other with Nog in the middle. Olaf tells Decker that he was the one that provided a battery backup to the pattern buffer so that he wouldn't die, and he asks Decker to pledge his loyalty to Red Squad by siding with him now. Decker acts like he's going to, but then he blasts Olaf when he's not expecting it. Days later, Nog and Decker are enjoying a fishing trip on the holodeck. 
They leave, and when Decker returns to his room, he finds that it's ransacked. And written on the wall is a threat, written in red. And it says, we'll get to you someday. The end, or to be continued. It's it's kind of un- unclear as to if these are to be continued or just little cliffhangers. What do you mean? Oh, with with the uh, with the red red paint on the wall or yeah. blood? The blood on the wall. Yeah. Well, Decker, you traitor! Right. You. We'll get you someday. Red exactly. Squad is dead, but its true disciples live on. <laughs> well. Uh, that's just going to be one of those things that's going to hang out there for a while. I think uh, I think we're not going to see any more Red Squad people for a while. Or ex-Red Squad people. Right. We'll see. I mean, Red Squad was supposedly disbanded with uh, when Wesley, you know, when they screwed up with that Starburst thing. Right. And then, you know, I don't think it's quite dead. Well, as long as we have bad guys in the admiral ranks that'll go ahead and try to get people to follow them to do their devious things. Right. Uh, like Admiral Marcus later, or actually previous. Uh, it's actually <laughs> further in the past, isn't it? Anyway, I think there will be red squads around. Right. Right. So, anyways, what'd you think about the uh, what was on Decker's desk there in the picture with the uh, the red words? Oh, what appeared to be a Constitution-class starship? Yeah, it looked just like the Art Asylum-type oh. <laughs> uh, enterprises you can buy now. Yeah, or models you could build when you were when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, but, but Art models. Asylum is the latest ones. You have to paint them yourself, and those little stickers what a, never... What a lot of bother. Yeah, decals. Those, those decals those often... Never work. Well... When, when I do it, because I don't know how. Well, full disclosure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What you want to do is you want to get the paint right, get the decals on, and then put a nice coating of uh, clear coat, you know, clear, uh, clear stuff on it, that and that'll sense. keep the uh, decals on. But yes, that's a lot of bother. I you used to, I shine. used to, I used to love doing models when I was a kid. Did you? But uh, yeah, art asylum, <laughs> toys essentially, toys for older boys uh, <laughs> and girls. Yeah, th- those are nice. Right, and I just recently had an interaction with Art Asylum, so can I go off on a little tangent here? Sure, why not? All right, so years and years and years ago, uh, they came out with a Star Trek II Wrath of Khan Enterprise. Okay. And I bought it, and it has like this little ball and socket type joint that holds right. it to the stand, and it broke almost immediately after I got it. Yeah. Yeah, so for 10 years, it's just been sitting there baseless. Uh-huh. But uh, the other day, I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to see if they sell bases on Art Asylum's website. Looked it up, nothing. But there's a, like, if you have a question, ask. I asked. Within an hour, I got an email from someone saying, send me a picture of, of the base. And I sent him a picture, and he's another, maybe another hour later. I found you one. I'll mail it out tomorrow. For free? For free. Wow, Cool. So, I mean, I was just shocked that, you know, they're still supporting a product that's, you know, 10 years old. Yeah. And they're still, you know, for free, able to, uh, you know, give you replacement parts. I'm very impressed with their... That's really good customer service. Customer service, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. So, now I know their quality stuff. 
Well, yeah. Right. I mean, they always produce quality stuff. The detail, the painting, it's really nice stuff that they're not really not making for kids. I mean, if right. the kids get get into it, fine, that's that's icing on the cake. But they're really doing it for people like themselves that really like that kind of thing, like me and you. So right. uh, love that. And the idea that they'd have such good customer service too, that's great. So yeah. go out and buy their stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's good stuff. Right. Yeah, I think they have all the enterprises with the exception of C. So even Pike's Enterprise, the NX-01 Enterprise, mm-hmm. all the way up to the Enterprise E. But right. no no C for some reason. Hmm. Well, that's Which, too bad. I think, uh, I think they need that. That's one of your favorites. It is. I mean, the they have a Pike. Ambassador class? Ambassador class. They have a Pike one with, with uh, you know, with with Pike's voice, so why couldn't they have a Rachel Garrett voice on ah, Rachel the Garrett. Enterprise C? Because <laughs> yeah. because we saw her once on one times, episode. How many times did we see Spike Pike? All those all those sound clips came from one episode. Yeah, well, unless unless you count the beeping, but I don't think that's the same beeping from uh, the Menagerie. Probably not. <laughs> um, yeah, and and yesterday's Enterprise was an excellent episode. One of my favorite next gens. One of the best. Yeah. And another thing about those Artist Island ships is they're such a good value. So there was actually a time that I actually was considering buying one of those incredibly expensive ships. You know, the, the kind of, like, cost $1,600. Ooh. You know, uh, Enterprise D. Um, right. what, what, what is the name of that, that website? They do great work, but their stuff is expensive. Um well, it'll probably come to me eventually. But the main point is really expensive. And then I was gonna I was gonna get it and I and I just said, Hey, wait a minute. I can get an art asylum one for like thirty nine dollars, which <laughs> is a hell of a lot less. And you know what? That's good enough. So Right. I saved myself some money. A little bit of money. A little bit. Just uh, you know. A lot. I mean, this thing was like fourteen ninety nine or something. It's gracious. But it, I'm sure it was very nice, but whatever. It, it better be life-size for that much. <laughs> <laughs> With working phasers, I'll just tell you that. <laughs> yeah, no, I probably not. No, probably not. No, that's cool, though. Yeah, so. Uh, so I do like them. I love them. All right. Okay. In the background, when, uh, when Camila is getting her blood tron... At the beginning of the episode, I thought there was a really cool-looking alien in the background. Uh, the the one that has his arm outstretched. Um, I'm I'm getting back to the page myself. So, oh yeah, there you go. He has his yeah, exactly. So he's got a Starfleet uniform on, but his like shoulder blades or something are like it's like he's got he's got a weird protuberance and he's got a very tall head. And for some reason, I was just noticing in the background, that's a cool-looking alien. Right. Really makes me wonder how that uniform is fitted on him. Exactly. Because that is a very unique body type. Right. So he's got uh, almost like his tops of his shoulders have like bones sticking outward to the left and to the right. Right. Very odd. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. I, I, I missed it. Yeah, well... He's in the background. I mean, they didn't even bother coloring him in. But eh, I just thought I'd mention that. So, do you think that um, 
after 9-11 happened, I lived in a different country, and I was watching all the episodes of Deep Space Nine again. Mm-hmm. And I got to the episode Homefront and Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. where this bombing happens, and right. I think they say 150 people died, and it was a big deal. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, 9-11, the Twin Towers, the, the mentality that they were talking about here in the Star Trek episodes, and the mentality that we faced mm-hmm. at that time were so close, and this happens... This the story that those two episodes happened so much earlier than than nine eleven that right. it just it was just odd how how they nailed it you know yeah. just that people would start acting like this and you know and, and that's exactly what happened almost uh, when that happened here yeah well fear will generate unfortunate reactions from some people right so it was just it was just um, you know. Before before nine eleven, I probably wouldn't have really thought about it. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. hundred fifty fake people died. Right. But then after the fact, when that really ha- when that happened in the show, I'm like, oh man, that that could that could really happen. And you know, yeah. we we've seen something much <clears throat> worse happen. So, anyways, I, I just I always draw those two parallels when when I read stories that make reference to that that bombing. Right. Yeah. Well, it was it was meant to be something like that. It was a you know a terrorist action, I guess, or a war action. No, it's te- I call it terror in this too. This right. attack, um, but a different topic. What about that transmitter that uh, Zund is able to plant on Decker oh, without him so. even knowing it? And it's huge. It's it's the size of a quarter at least. Yeah, it's not bigger. Right. And so interesting that nobody else noticed it, including these really hotshot Red Squad guys. <laughs> right. So it, it's like on the back of his head, uh, you know, maybe there's a little hair underneath it, but I doubt it. Right, because his, his hair is shaved kind of on the side and the back. He has long, yeah. long hair on the top, but shaved, so. Right. I mean, he hasn't run his hands through his hair all day long and said, Apparently not. What is this? Mean. Yeah. Hey, what? Hey, what is that? Hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> no. And only that. It's it's not only magical in the fact that the people that have it on have no clue about it being there, but somehow it's able to transmit even when it's dematerialized into a transporter buffer. Oh, I hated that part. I, I liked the part where it, where it showed Decker dematerializing and rematerializing. Right. I thought that was actually a pretty cool transition. Oh, and, but and, but their yeah. explanation as to how they found him was so That ridiculous. was lame. Yeah, so the part you like is the fact that he's dematerialized, he sees the Red Squad guys that did it to him, and then he rematerializes and he sees his Omega team there. He's like, how did you find me so fast? Yes. Right. Right. And it's right. kind of told from his point of view, so you can kind of see exactly. him dissolving into one, one and then the other. Right. So six days had passed that Decker was completely out of the game, uh, and so many things went on. So that was kind of that was kind of cool too. That mean that all that time had passed. Was that, it cool because they were still able to track him even though he's been in a pattern buffer for? Six well, no, days. but I didn't say that. Okay, okay, so okay. you're bringing on a different pot. Uh, <laughs> the part you talked about the time lapsing and right. him not being aware of it. I think it was even cooler in the fact that it was actually yeah. six days. You know that just. From his point of view, yes. From his point of view. The fact that they were somehow able to track him with the device, even though the device no longer existed and was just in a pattern buffer electronically, uh, yeah. Don't know how that worked. Right. Now, wouldn't it be cool if you could do something like that and just skip some time 
So, like, you know, you're really looking forward to the Justice League movie coming out. <laughs> so I'll just stick myself in a pattern buffer for a couple of months, and then I'll be that much closer. You'll be that much closer, yes. And you will not have aged. Right. And all you other chumps will be older, and I'll be like, hee-hee. <laughs> yeah. Too bad no. transporters don't really exist. Oh, yeah, that's right. Dang. So they did mention that the lights went out for a couple of days. Uh, so they, Omega Squad or wh- whatever they are, uh, they Omega did Squad. fulfill their goal, their plan, the the blackout and the the terror or oh, whatever the they're team. trying to do. Red Squad, yeah, right. Or Red right. Squad, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I thought mean, that was interesting that they technically won, even though they lose at the end. But for those six days, they had won. They had won. They, they got what they wanted. Okay. So right. I, I haven't got anything else. No, I'm good, too. So I guess we can uh, wrap up and then be back next week for uh, Deep Space Nine, four through six. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of bopping back and forth. Deep Space Nine. There you go. Sounds good. And we'll we'll be taking a break from Deep Space Nine or from this Marvel era here pretty soon to do the next uh, IDW ongoing. So look forward to that in a couple of weeks. Yes. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. On the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.